Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. With episode 530 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, getting over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down everything that happened over the last week in the world of NXT and AEW. You have AEW building toward World's End, which is going to be the final pay-per-view of the year for either company. Of course, NXT coming out of deadline. We will have a second look on that show before we go ahead and break down what happened on NXT this past Tuesday. There's also some big news in the world of professional wrestling right now as it relates to TV rights for WWE's Monday Night Raw. We will briefly discuss that at the top of the show, and there's going to be a lot more coming up over on buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. I'll promote that for you right now, actually, because I have a set of reminders, and let's just kick it off with that one, because here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, I happen to love the number... Five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant recaps of Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown. And yes, folks, I normally do those every single week. I was out and about this entire week, which is why we were not able to deliver those to you. But we should be back in full force with those fastest five minutes, beginning again with SmackDown on Friday and in totality next week. But beyond that, you also get exclusive news posts every single Friday. And this Friday, our primary topic will be WWE Monday Night Raw, the future of its television contract, and what that might have to do with Warner Brothers Discovery and AEW. A lot of stuff happening, or a lot of stuff, I should say, being discussed uh, on the interwebs this Thursday as we tape this show. A lot of misinformation out there is the best way I can put it. We'll discuss it all in that exclusive news post on Friday. With that said, let me also remind you that here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, it's all about Defy. So please go ahead and leave those five-star ratings for us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, if you take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. We will read it live right here on the show. On Spotify, there's not really a huge opportunity to do that, but we would love your five-star ratings. Greatly appreciate them as always. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news, analysis, highlights, all of that good stuff. I did say earlier in this week, we were gonna begin nominations for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, that was supposed to start on Monday. Then it was supposed to start on Wednesday. Unfortunately, I have not felt well this entire week. I think everything is completely fine. Obviously, it's just an illness, uh, but I haven't been able to do anything extra. So we're going to go ahead, push that to this coming Monday, beginning this Monday, we will have nominations for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, coming to you on our Twitter account at Getting Overcast. So if you don't follow already, make sure you go ahead and do that. With all of that said, let's go ahead and jump into today's show. We are going to kick it off with NXT mostly because it's coming off of the NXT Deadline Premium Live event. I did have some second look analysis I wanted to share with that. 
Once that is over, we will move into NXT, what happened on Tuesday. We're not going to give you any spoilers. They taped two shows for the next two weeks. We're not going to give you any spoilers. We will mention something that happened on those shows just for clarity's sake. Uh, But beyond that, we're going to treat it just like their live shows every single week. We will give you the analysis episodes just like we are doing here. And then once we finish with NXT, we will discuss the entirety of AEW across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. We do have timestamps in the episode description. So if for one reason or another, uh, you want to jump around or you only listen to AEW, you only listen to NXT, you have that opportunity. But as always, I hope you listen to this entire show. With that said, let's go ahead and jump into the NXT deadline. Second look, not too much here. We're going to run through it rather quickly. Just a couple items I wanted to mention. And of course, some matches where I wanted to go over uh, the immediate grades again. I want to correct anything that might be there. Uh, In terms of the overall show, I just want to kind of reiterate, CM Punk and NXT was legitimately surreal. Like seeing all the pictures from the backstage area coming out of it, him and Shawn Michaels, in the ring together, wild. He was also backstage at NXT this week. He did not show up on camera, uh, but he was working with talent. He did some gym work with uh, Cora Jade and Roxanne Perez. They got a session in together. Obviously, they're both immense fans of his and AJ Lee's from back in the day. Uh, So it's just this really cool thing. Something that is kind of funny is the only pictures I've seen of CM Punk with NXT talent have been women. And I just thought that's kind of funny. Like our guys bashful and not wanting to take pictures of him. Are the women bigger fans of his? It's just one of those really funny elements that I've noticed uh, coming out of it. But beyond that, I did want to point out that to start NXT uh, deadline, Booker T was absolutely hysterical uh, when Shawn Michaels walked out and did that like opening segment. The pop that the fans gave obviously was fantastic, but the pop that Booker T gave Shawn Michaels during the entrance. I just thought was really funny. So go back and listen to that. Let's get into some of these quick match analysis breakdowns. NXT Championship, Ilya Dragunov against Baron Corbin. I said four stars A- minus originally, uh, grading it after watching it live. I'm moving it down 3.75 stars B+, on rewatch. It just never really grabbed me. They had so many different opportunities. It was way too slow, not a lot of high-level action. And I think I said that it was like Ilya's eighth best match of the year or something like that coming out of it. I was just kind of curious, right? So I checked cage match and their ratings don't matter. But I was wondering like, hey, how do the majority of fans who at least visit this website rank this match? And I am not shitting you. I think they had it as his number nine singles match of the entire year. So I was just guessing, like throwing it out there. But that's pretty much what other people believed. So I'm glad I was not alone. But again, I am downgrading to 3.75 stars B+. Men's Iron Survivor Challenge, Braun Breaker, Trick Williams, Dijak, Josh Briggs, and Tyler Bate. Originally, I said 4.25 stars A. I'm keeping it there for all the reasons I stated on the instant analysis. This was a match that however you slice it, just felt like it mattered and everything that happened felt impactful. I did, however, let all of you down because I did not point out during the analysis that this match, man oh man, did it have some big meaty men slapping meat. (laughs) Big meaty men slapping meat. (laughs) I mean, there was a lot of beef out there. There's a lot of beef out here. And no one was looking for any water or any bread. All they wanted out of this was meat. He don't want no water. He don't want no bread. All he wants is meat. Three, 
Clearly, they reinforce the ring post. <laughs> reinforce the ring post. The beat's going to be flying tonight, gentlemen. And I'll stop there. I just wanted to make up for the analysis and, and get you with some extra here as well. Uh, but you had four massive dudes. And then Bate. And even he is the big, strong boy, right? It was just such a ridiculously unique match, given the size of the four main competitors. And then Bate and his completely, like, he wasn't just a little shorter and a little smaller than all of them. He was by far the smallest person in the entire match. The juxtaposition of him getting multiple falls against them and some of the big spots they did using their strength and size, it just made it an immensely unique match. Seeing the sequence with, Briggs and Dijak, I couldn't help but think they would be way better and more believable as tag team partners than Briggs and Jensen are. They worked together so well. They looked great. You could call them high justice and immediately move them to the main roster tomorrow. And I don't think anyone would blink about it. They are ready if you were to put them together to bring them up. I do stand by my take on the finish. While it was exciting, it should have been extended for a little bit more time because it was truly ridiculous that Trick Williams was knocked out for only like 35 seconds after taking that huge spot outside. And then he comes back in. He quickly recovers from a die jack finisher and a bait corkscrew to immediately get pinfalls both times. I don't like during regular matches when people no sell impactful moves. And if that's the case, I can't like it in a sequence like this either. Even if he's motivated and there's a lot of you know energy there, like he's still taking these big impactful moves he needs to sell them more, and that's why I wish that segment went a little bit longer, the segment at the end of the match. A random thought I had is Braun Breaker. He is clearly on a trajectory to be better than both his father and his uncle. Outside of like Randy Orton, I really can't think of that many wrestlers where you could say something like that this early in their career and not be thought of as a lunatic for saying as much. I mean, especially when it comes to other wrestling families where the people that preceded them are massively talented, which both the Steiner brothers were. So I just wanted to put that out there. And I do believe I said this on the instant analysis, but he's ready for the main roster. You know, we talked around stand and deliver time. He had to turn heel. He needed some time in NXT. He's got that time. He's ready. Whenever they want, Braun Breaker is ready to go. Women's Iron Survivor Challenge, Tiffany Stratton, Kalani Jordan, Lash Legend, Blair Davenport, and Fallon Henley. Originally, I gave this a 3.75 stars and a B plus, right on the borderline. But I got to tell you on the rewatch, I'm higher. Four stars, A minus. What I said about some of the slip ups completely holds true. But there were so many tremendous runs during this match. And the crowd was so immensely hot throughout. The reason I didn't think of this highly when I initially viewed it was the finish. It just, it's kind of sudden and commentary didn't really sell Blair's finishing move well. That is a continuous problem in WWE right now, both on the main roster to some degree and in NXT. You gotta sell the finishers better, especially when people are watching who may not be as familiar with your product, which likely happens for Deadline. I would not be surprised if overall more people watch something like NXT Deadline than they do the weekly show Number one, because it's WWE main roster fans who already have Peacock, and they know that it's the best that NXT has to offer, just like the takeovers used to be. Uh, looking at how Stratton did the Swanton Bomb from the top of the penalty box, compare that, juxtapose that, with the way Charlotte Flair does her moonsault outside, night and day. I also couldn't help but look at Fallon and wonder if she might end up being what WWE thought it had in Lacey Evans. 
And obviously she doesn't have the military background. I also hate to put it in this context because no one can be this guy. But there's something about her that just kind of gives me John Cena vibes in terms of the track that she can take in terms of like character progression to become a bona fide star in the women's division. She's flashed that so many times previously in this match. You saw it. And on that note, you know, so much has been said about comparing Stratton to Charlotte, but given her innate athletic ability and the progress that she's already made in such a short period of time, she feels more to me like a Randy Orton. And the way this feud is going with Henley, I just get vibes that like they could be going at each other for a decade on the main roster. There's just something between them that makes sense and works. And I'm glad that we're revisiting that storyline now in NXT and getting to see a little bit more of it because I did think it was going to be over at uh, deadline. Uh, Kalani Jordan in this match got her ass absolutely kicked. So many huge bumps. There was the accidental one into the announce table. She took some huge bombs and drivers in the ring. It would not at all surprise me if she was seriously banged up coming out of this. I mean, hopefully knock on wood, no injury or anything like that. Just bumps and bruises and sore. Like she took an absolute beating and I really hope she was okay coming out of this. And for both of these matches, the Iron Survivor challenges, I just like it if they did the flashing lights gimmick for the final 30 seconds, maybe 15 seconds instead of the final five. It would really make those moments, the end sequences of those matches, more impactful, more exciting, more concerning. And it would just up the intensity of the finish as opposed to like in both cases, a fall happened and then the countdown started and you're just like, okay, so it's about to end. And you only get five seconds of that. But what if that was going off while Trick speared Braun Breaker and got the pin? You'd be like, holy shit, he literally beat him at the buzzer. So I do hope they extend that a little bit longer in the future. Two other things real quick. Rey Mysterio was hysterical rooting against Dominic during the North American Championship match. And I'm pretty sure I noticed Paul Ellering lurking in the background at one point during one of the backstage segments. It was either that or someone who looked very much like him. So I just wanted to put all of that out there. That wraps up the NXT deadline. Second look, a couple of minor adjustments in terms of the match grades, but just some extra thoughts I had being able to watch it in a more controlled environment the second time. With all of that said, let's move to NXT from Tuesday. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams were clowning in a really good mood on their way into the WWE Performance Center when they met paparazzi with Trick staying to talk and Melo dipping out. After an NXT deadline recap, Melo was shown having been attacked, selling a knee backstage. The trainer later cleared Melo, saying nothing at all was wrong with him. Trick was hyped that Melo was good to go for SmackDown. Melo said he had an idea of who might have done it, and he promised he would call them out, telling Trick to go handle his business and they would commiserate later. My initial thought here was that Melo saw Trick getting attention. He knew he was going to be distracted, so it was the perfect opportunity to fake an injury and perhaps swerve Williams into believing that someone was actually after both of them when perhaps it was Hayes all along. That was only strengthened based on the trainer making it crystal clear that nothing at all was wrong with Melo. But I loved the way that when Trick was speaking to the paparazzi and the media, you had Melo like open the door, look back real quick, turn his head and walk in. It's those little elements that really set NXT apart from a storytelling standpoint. So Trick came out for the main event, got an enormous pop. He did some of Booker T's improvisations over his own music. He put over everyone in the Iron Survivor Challenge, saying it should be up for best match of the NXT Awards at the end of the year. The dude had a hell of a line next. 
Trick Willie is clutching the fourth. Never mind Steph Curry. I'm Trick Curry. I'm Tricky McGrady. I'm Mike Trick. I'm 23 in LA. Never mind who you thought I was. I'm Trick James, bitch. Excellent. And I hope I did it justice. Then he called Ilya Dragunov the baddest man in NXT, countering that he's the hottest star. Dragunov came out saying he was right that Williams has leveled up, presented to you by Shazam Fury of the Gods, ever since they had their matches previously. He put over Trick's momentum and dapped him up, saying that it all is going to come to an end at New Year's Evil. Ilya said he's suffered too much to become and remain the NXT champion, and that he won't stray from that mindset. Then, Mello entered in a surprise, sold a limp. He apologized for interrupting, but said they got to take care of business. He said he was sick of his name being dragged through the dirt because the same person attacked both of them. Dragunov went to leave, but Hayes blamed him. Ilya was floored by the accusation. Mello said no one had more to gain by splitting them up. Dragunov called him delusional. Mello pointed out how Trick's distraction is the only reason he didn't beat Ilya at Halloween Havoc. So Dragunov shot back that he didn't attack Williams or Hayes if it even happened at all. Mello kept going off about Trick and Trick tried to calm him down. Mello then got into a tug of war over the title. Ilya let go. And, you know, through the momentum of that, he accidentally drilled Trick with the title as NXT went off the air. Now, this did go about 90 seconds too long, maybe two minutes too long. And in kayfabe, it came across as clear gaslighting, like a last ditch attempt by Mello to get away from the accusations. Well, that and also an effort to distract Trick with a huge title match upcoming. Mello being the one who attacked Trick always made the most sense. And it seems like that is now indeed the storyline. So we could certainly see Mello cost Trick the title at New Year's Evil. That could lead to a blow-off match. They could either do that at Vengeance Day or stand and deliver with Trick winning and Mello getting called up afterward. Maybe the move is to do their match at Vengeance Day and then you put Trick in the NXT title match at Stand and Deliver to give him the championship on WrestleMania weekend. It makes too much sense for one of those to not be the booking. And while it would be sad to see them completely split up, if Mello is getting called up and Trick is not, then you might as well get Trick as over as possible. You can always reunite them on the main roster down the road. I did hope they would get called up together because they work so well as a duo. Originally, the thing holding that back was that Mello was so much further developed than Trick and Trick needed time to continue developing in the PC and showing out on NXT, but they've given him that time now. And I'm not saying he's main roster ready, but he is super close to that. And you could definitely bring both of them up and it would work. They don't seem to want to. That's their own decision. I probably would disagree with it. Segment uh, was strong though. Trick's solo promo, that was main roster quality. And the way he and Ilya went back and forth with respect, it fit into both of their characters. Even though we know he's not winning the title right away, the babyface run that Trick has right now, it is fantastic and it is fun to watch. Now let's go away from this to the rest of the show. Uh, Cora Jade was in the ring wearing some of the strangest pants I think I've ever seen, saying the fans had a rough four months with her off TV and everyone was talking about her coming out of deadline. She was definitely doing a little bit of Mandy Rose here. Lyra Valkyria interrupted, saying the game has changed in NXT. Then Blair Devonport interrupted, reminding that she's actually the number one contender for New Year's Evil. Next out was Nikita Lyons wanting revenge on Blair. That led to a quick brawl and an obvious tag team matchup forthcoming, Playa. The only thing missing here was Lola Vice. She has the breakout contract. 
it would have made sense for her to at least step on stage and like laugh at the others and then hold up the contract. Like she could have at least done that and been involved, even if you weren't putting her in the match. Later backstage, the faces had a conversation about getting ready for the match when Lyra opened her locker to find a photo of her and Becky Lynch instead had Tatum Paxley's face pasted over Becky's. They agreed that Tatum was weird. There's something strange about the way Nikita speaks where it just sounds so unnatural. Maybe that's her trying to like remember scripted lines. I'm not sure, but it's odd to me. And it's something that has not improved since her return. Even later backstage, Davenport pointed out that Jade stepped in her moment at deadline. Cora explained that she only came out because Lyra did first and Blair kind of accepted that explanation. They ultimately got on the same page about taking out the faces. And this was actually kind of unique seeing a couple heels get on the same page easily. Like it didn't take convincing. It wasn't like, oh, we hate them so much. It was just, hey, look, we got to win this match. It's good for both of us. And they're like, all right, let's go do that. I mean, that's how it would be in reality. I liked it way more what we got with the heels than the equivalent baby face segment that we just discussed. So Valkyria and Lions fought Jade and Davenport. Most notable is that Nikita got rid of that absolutely awful ring gear that she used to wear. The new gear is still bad, but it's 50% better by comparison. Paxley sat on the barricade watching Valkyria. Davenport hit a falcon arrow and a pumped knee on the champion, but Lions pulled her outside. Jade had blind tag during the sequence and then covered Lyra for the one, two, three. After the bell, Tatum threw Nikita out of the ring and creepily hugged Lyra while holding a black feather in her hands. The match was fine, but unspectacular. I'm really not into the idea of a champion taking the fall so soon after winning the title. Nikita easily could have been the one who took the fall. I do like what they're doing with Tatum and Lyra, and I'm kind of curious where that exactly is going to go. Because right now, there's a couple challengers for Valkyria's title. You would expect Paxley would eventually become one of them. Is that going to be the match at deadline? I mean, that would be quite an elevation uh, for Paxley. So we'll have to find out. North American Championship, Dragon Lee held an open challenge backstage. He called it a dream come true to win the title with Rey Mysterio ringside. He put over Wes Lee, promised to defend the title as much as possible, like he did, starting with that night. Tyler Bate answered the challenge and ate a super kick while in a corner handstand, plus then a tope suicida. Dragon took a helicopter slam and rebound lariat. He came back with a draping double stomp. They both countered finishers with Dragon ducking a rebound lariat and coming back with Destino to retain the title. They dapped up after the bell before Dragon celebrated. Lee's finisher is actually now called Operation Dragon, which look, terrible name, but at least it has a name. It's still a Destino to me. This sure did seem like a write-off for Bate, who will likely be headed to the main roster and probably SmackDown sooner than later. Later backstage, Drew Gulak's group, which we eventually learned is called the No Quarter Catch Crew, confronted Dragon wondering if he was going to have an open challenge every week. This was actually a decently fun back and forth with Gulak, like injecting sarcastic heel comedy. Dragon answered in Spanish, which he didn't understand, so he affirmed in English. Gulak said they would surprise him with the challenger next week. I'm fine with the open challenge concept, especially if the idea is that Dragon at some point just gets caught and loses the title. I have a feeling, though, a lot of this remains to be determined, and they're kind of just doing this as an interim storyline. But Gulak's old group back in Evolve was called Catchpoint. I feel like they could have just called this Catch Crew and just been done with it. It sounds like an unnecessarily long and complicated name. Like, it's the same amount of syllables, I think, as Blackpool Combat Club, but that sounds so cool. No quarter catch crew. That is very difficult to say. 
Uh, but this also is not a faction that's going to get that much play anyway. So it's probably not that important at the end of the day. Josh Briggs, Brooks Jensen, and Fallon Henley fought Metaphor in a six-person mixed tag team match. Jakara Jackson was again left out, though it does make sense because Lash Legend is rolling right now. The heels attacked before the bell with Lash throwing Fallon outside the ring into her guise. Jensen sold a leg injury. The referee missed a tag to Briggs. Tiffany Stratton ran out to go at Henley. Both of them went backstage. Jensen ate Nova Roller, falling back into Briggs for the hot tag. He crushed Noam Dar with a lariat. The faces got shorthanded with Briggs beating the Heritage Cup holder at the end of the match. Solid from start to finish, both from an in-ring and a character work standpoint when it comes to what they did in and around the match. Not sure I can say the right side won, but if Briggs was going to get a Heritage Cup match, that would have made a lot of sense in terms of the Dar storyline and an internal team storyline with Jensen potentially getting jealous. In fact, that's exactly what transpired later in the show. Briggs suggested he was in line for a shot. Jensen said it wasn't his match style. Briggs pointed out Iron Survivor wasn't his style either, and he needed to keep his momentum going, and they all eventually agreed he should go after it. As I said earlier, during the deadline, you know, second look, Briggs and Dijak looked far better together as a potential team than Briggs does with Jensen. I just believe he's extremely limited, and it would be pretty interesting if he came out of this and lost the Heritage Cup and maybe moved out of this crew and they did something different. I'd be interested in that. Stratton backstage was furious about Henley, saying that she cost her the Iron Survivor Challenge and doesn't measure up to her in any way. It feels a little repetitive to go back to them fighting, but I did enjoy the last one, and Fallon has absolutely leveled up her game, sponsored by Shazam Fury of the Gods, from working with Tiffany, so you might as well run it back and continue that progress. That's what I mentioned earlier. Eddie Thorpe fought Dijak. This started outside before the bell. The side of Dijak's head got busted open, and then seconds into the match, he ran him into the corner, only for the top turnbuckle to completely pop off. So Dijak grabs this broken turnbuckle and starts just drilling him with it over and over again for a disqualification. Then he dropped him ribs first onto the exposed second turnbuckle, like the back part of it, which was definitely inventive. I didn't have a problem with the booking because it was barely advertised, but it really lacked energy. That's not going to be a problem, though. This should 100%, based on what they're doing with the turnbuckle popping off and then, you know, dropping him on the top of the exposed part of it, this should result in an NXT Underground match between them, which you'll remember we saw Thorpe thrive against Damon Kemp the last time they did this. That's the best match of Eddie Thorpe's uh, NXT career, the best match of Damon Kemp's NXT career. And look, Dijak already has a banger that he's done with Ilya Dragunov. He might have a chance to make this the best match of his NXT career as well. I could definitely see this being booked and I could definitely see it being a banger. That's gonna be a banger. Chase U was in session with Andre Chase realizing they've only raised $300 so far. Everyone was wearing red in like this classroom, except for JC Jane, who was in black. The girls decided to go watch the match of the guy that Thea Hale is crushing on. Then Scripps came in with a briefcase offering Andre Chase a proposition. It was fine. It just feels like we need more to happen, right? Like the storyline's been dragging. Duke Hudson needs to break out the poker table and get to work. It's as simple as that. NXT breakout tournament. The competitors were all announced before the tournament began. This is the men's version. The women's, of course, already ended with Lola Vice winning. Uh, but before the bell rang, Lexus King ran out with a chair and attacked Trey Bearhill from behind. 
Later backstage, Ava was outside Shawn Michaels' office saying everyone in the tournament wanted to kick his ass, to which King replied, mission accomplished. Basically, he weaseled his way into the tournament. So now we know who's gonna win the whole shebang. Ava's doing okay in this role. What's yet to be determined is whether she's being an assistant to the GM or a talent liaison that could actually become a manager. And that leads to this. I got a DM from Mark Freund, I believe, Mark Freund TV on Twitter, who pointed out that you can trace Ava's change back to when she met Paul Heyman during that special NXT episode with John Cena and The Undertaker. Quite possible that was meant to be a precursor to this, with Heyman suggesting she either gets into an authority figure role or a managerial role. Really curious to see exactly what they do with it. Uh, so let's get to the two breakout tournament matches we got on NXT. Oba Femi against Miles Bourne was the first. This was Femi's second TV match, while Bourne has been working with the Drew Gulak crew for months. Uh, Femi hit something like a toss, one-armed spinebuster, with Bourne catching him for a power slam, but Femi came back with a pop-up powerbomb for the win. This was fine. I saw a lot of people going crazy about Oba Femi here. I thought he was more impressive in the first match he had like six months ago when he debuted. I thought he was just okay given how long he's been training. The selling of basic moves was a problem. From an in-ring standpoint, it would have been better for Bourne to win, but Femi has the higher ceiling for sure. And he actually proved that in a post-match social media promo that you can go find on the WWE NXT Twitter account. That was better, I thought, from him than the match was. Uh, the second match was Riley Osborne against Keanu Carver. Osborne was representing Chase U, so now we know who Hale was obsessed with from last week. He got chance at the bell because he's done a lot of level up matches in front of that Orlando crowd. I actually saw him wrestle Axiom when I was there a few weeks ago. It was a mini banger, I'll say. Uh, Carver hit a fallaway slam without falling and pounced the ever-loving shit out of him. Booker T sold this so well, but Osborne came back hitting a shooting star press for the win. This was like five times better than the match that we just discussed. Carver has got something for sure, and Osborne is legitimately exciting to watch, even if right now he's a bit vanilla. Easily the best match in both breakout tournaments combined to this point. Thea nervously flirted with Riley backstage after the match, with JC watching and dying from all the cringe. Keanu James and Izzy Dame then came up, laughing that Osborne's a man and Hale is a child who has no real chance with him. So we're gonna get a tag team match out of this, you gotta assume, maybe with Roxanne Perez getting involved to cost the heels and continue her feud because she got screwed over at you know for the deadline opportunity. Also, she got screwed over in the deadline steel cage match, now that I'm remembering. JC, she continues to prove that she is going to be a star on the main roster, great character actor. She can go in the ring, arrow is pointing up and the ceiling is being raised for her. Hank and Tank got into it with Gallus backstage ahead of their match next week. The faces said they had more heart than all three of them combined, but Joe Coffey clarified there was no way he was getting involved in that match. It was beneath him, basically. The faces walked off when Joe Gacy randomly appeared wearing a construction hat and a flannel behind the wheel of a forklift, purposefully making terrible Joe jokes, referring to like Joe Coffey, Cups of Joe, like the last two weeks... <laughs> may well have been the best two segments involving Gallus since they moved to the United States. And Gacy continues to intrigue in this new role. I'm extremely curious to see what they are doing with him and what the ultimate purpose is, what kind of character he is going to be in NXT. So that about wraps it up for NXT this week. Um, you know, I'm glad that I got the opportunity to give you some of the second look analysis on NXT deadline. It was a strong episode of TV. 
I have no idea what's exactly going to be happening over the next two weeks of NXT TV. There have been certain times where they tape shows and it's extremely obvious they are taped and they're boring and frustrating and so on. There are other times where you just cannot tell the difference. And I hope that is certainly the case going forward. Now, I'm not gonna give you any spoilers. Um, And I did not look at the results for the two shows. What I will tell you is one thing. An angle is run at some point over the next two episodes that involves an injury to Ilya Dragunov. And it blew up on Twitter on Wednesday night. People thought it was real. It is kayfabe. It is the same situation, at least in terms of my understanding, as what happened with Braun Breaker and Von Wagner, where it was done so well and people immediately took pictures and video, you know, live in the WWE Performance Center and put it online and kind of just made the assumption that it was real. My understanding is that it's kayfabe and a work and no one should get upset about it. So we'll see what happens on Tuesday. We'll see if we can tell. And also, I don't know if it's going to be this coming Tuesday or two weeks from now. I'm not sure which show it happened on in terms of the taped product. Uh, But we certainly will, you know, take a look at it. And when it happens on TV, we'll discuss whether it's clearly uh, fake or whether it looked like it might have been real, right? So that's the best I can do for you right now without going into spoilers and anything else. But you can certainly look it up if you wish. With all that said, folks, let's go ahead and move over to AEW. We're going to break down Dynamite Collision and Rampage all together based on storyline. I'm going to give you a little bit of a heads up right before we begin uh, all of this analysis. The first half of this is going to be immensely positive. I loved what we got this week from the Continental Classic. It's just fantastic. I mean, the banger matches, sure, but just the unique matchups, the way they're being presented, the finishes that we got in some of them were excellent. Huge fan of the Continental Classic and what's going on right now. Once we stop talking about that, it's going to go downhill significantly. Just a warning, and I hope you... Uh, respect and appreciate that. But let's go ahead and get into it because we're going to start massively positive. We're actually going to begin with the opening of Dynamite on Wednesday. Samoa Joe kicked things off and got a great pop and chant from the crowd. He said he wanted answers, especially after noticing the beer bottle was the brand that Hangman Page drinks. Of course, the beer bottle cracked over the head of MJF last week. Page got in Samoa Joe's face saying he should be accused to his face because he doesn't care about the devil or any of MJF's hijinks. Joe said he wasn't there to accuse, he was there to execute. Amazing line by Samoa Joe. Tops on the mic. I mean, he maybe is one of the best all time. Like, I know we don't really think of him in that context. The guy can speak. Roderick Strong and the kingdom then interrupted. They connected the dots to prove MJF is the devil. Hangman got annoyed. He just punched Strong in the face, and that led to a previously scheduled match. Hangman against Strong. Page hit a nice Death Valley driver. He landed on his feet after a missed moonsault and hit a pop-up Liger bomb. Strong came back with a Tiger driver and Stronghold. Buckshot Lariat got interrupted, so Hangman moonsaulted the kingdom twice outside. Strong then blocked the Buckshot, but Hangman blocked the back elbow and came back with Deadeye for the win. This was very Monday Night Raw in terms of an open to Dynamite, and I say that as a compliment. The Joe Hangman face-to-face was perfect. It made me want to see them feud immediately. It's unfortunate that Strong with this gimmick had to interrupt, but it made sense because of the storyline and the transition into the match. And then we got an extremely strong match to kick things off. Plus, Hangman not only won, but he got the W with a signature instead of a finisher, and you know I love that. 
probably not the best look for a strong that he didn't get beat with a finisher, but it worked well for Hangman. Now, certainly, Page is not the devil. We knew that. So the question is, what was last week's attack on MJF about, and why was he being framed for it? Won't be able to opine on that until we actually get further storyline or resolution on the matter. And even though something happened later in Dynamite that we're going to discuss right now, it didn't really clarify that question. So Dynamite ended with Hangman being attacked by the Devil's goons in the parking lot, and the Devil was sitting in a car watching as this happened. The Devil then got out of the car, and he nodded, and Hangman got double slammed into the windshield, and the show went off the air. The Devil was standing behind a car door, so we could not see his lower body, which lends further credence to the idea that it's Adam Cole, and they're hiding the brace, or they're at least swerving us into believing it might be Adam Cole because of the way the devil was positioned here. Now that said, the devil did look larger and puffier in the chest, way bigger than Cole or Jungle Boy. But it's possible that whoever was in the mask was just wearing padding to kind of fool us. Hangman getting attacked, it obviously proves it's not him, but we already knew it wasn't him. All right, so let's move to the Continental Classic. We're gonna talk about that in its entirety and then we will discuss the rest of AEW. On Rampage, Brian Danielson fought Daniel Garcia in a Blue League match. Caught in a triangle choke, Garcia ate a bunch of direct elbows. He came back with a dragon tamer. He leaned all the way back. Brian countered into a headlock and Garcia countered back into a pile driver. Garcia then stomped on his broken orbital bone and danced only to get caught with a psycho knee in a false finish. Brian put him in the label lock and delivered forearms until he stopped struggling and the referee called the match. This was damn strong, 3.75 stars B+. Garcia again cost himself with the Dragon Tamer because of the lean and also because of the dancing. We mentioned all of this previously. It should be playing into something. Will it? Who the hell knows? This also would have been a perfect situation for Danielson to like lean into the whole JAS over BCC choice that Garcia made and maybe even remind him after the bell, you are a professional wrestler. But they didn't do that. Nothing on the mic, nothing face-to-face, just wrestling and nothing else. I was a little bit disappointed by that, even though I loved the match. On Collision, Eddie Kingston fought Claudio Castagnoli. This was also blue. Uh, It obviously had animosity from their long-term feud. Kingston broke a sharpshooter with the ropes. Claudio dug his fingernails into Eddie's back, except he was wearing a shirt. So what was the point of that? Kingston took a ton of punishment, but escaped a Ricola bomb only for Claudio to dodge the back fist that followed and come back with a European uppercut. Kingston then came back with a half and half suplex, hit a back fist. Claudio completely no-sold it. Then he had a second one and got a false finish. So he had a third and Claudio no-sold that into a powerbomb counter only for Eddie to counter back into a pinning combination for the win. So the story of the match was Eddie being a loss away from being mathematically eliminated. So basically he stole victory from the jaws of defeat, taking down Claudio. That worked. The match was kind of boring for the first two thirds. And by the time it picked up, I just could not get over Claudio showing no effect from a finisher that Eddie has used to win championships. Two of them he no-sold. One of them in between those two was a false finish. It just didn't work for me. But Eddie getting the win and going on a run where he actually gets to the finals would be immensely interesting. I don't know if they're going to do that, but let's see. On collision, Danielson fought Andrade El Idolo in a blue match. Backstage before it, Miro was angry that Hot and Flexible was doing her job, saying nice things about her client. He asked why she couldn't stay home and let him be the earner. So when he hunts, she cleans. Miro said he wouldn't touch Andrade during the tournament 
but would crush him after. So like I said last week, they are still married and they are living together. And that makes this even more ridiculous. But the match is what matters here. Andrade ripped off Brian's eye patch during commercial. So we didn't even really get to see that in full screen. That was a key moment in the match. I thought that was a mistake. But then Danielson bladed after taking an elbow to the eye socket. Brian stopped figure four from becoming figure eight with a rope break, then straight gouged Danielson's eye clear in view of the referee. Andrade did that. They had a fun slap fight on the ropes with fans chanting we instead of yes, and he hit a missile drop kick. They did some nice pin and punch counters. Andrade hit three amigos with a superplex starter. Brian's nose was bleeding before an avalanche belly to back suplex. Andrade hit his back elbow and countered Brian running with another one before delivering Meteora to the back of his head into a turnbuckle, and then more elbows, and then a Meteora to the front of his head, plus a hammerlock DDT for the clean one, two, three in the center of the ring. Andrade checked on Brian after the bell, only to get shoved away by Claudio. This was a massive win for Andrade, and it was easily the match of the night, and I would say the match of the weekend when it came to the two AEW shows. Four stars, A minus. If you're another quarter star higher, I totally accept that. It was excellent from bell to bell. Tremendous storytelling throughout with the eye. Whereas the Adam Copeland neck stuff, it's like ridiculous, as was the Danielson concussion stuff early in his AEW tenure, he's literally wrestling this tournament coming back from a non-life-threatening injury which made it completely palatable and acceptable for them to do this. I loved every part of it. You got to imagine AEW is comfortable with Andrade and his like long-term future there, given the booking, because we thought he was on his way out and he was just biding his time. And maybe he'd come into this tournament and win a couple, but lose you know the majority and not really factor in. You don't go and beat Brian Danielson like this and not be someone that AEW is leaning on. And then we had another Andrade match on Dynamite against Brody King, also the Blue League. Andrade hit a split-leg moonsault. Brody avoided him in a corner, hit a massive lariat for a false finish plus a cannonball. Andrade countered him with a back elbow and basically did a DDT into the top of an exposed turnbuckle in the corner. He immediately capitalized with the hammerlock DDT for the win. Another fantastic match, 3.75 stars B+. The last five days for Andrade have been the best five days and the best two-match stretch of his entire AEW career. He was phenomenal in the ring here, and now he leads his side of the table with nine points. No losses so far, two matches left. Love the dynamic of the match and how Brody sold the hell out of everything that Andrade gave him. This was just excellent as well. On Dynamite, Roosh beat Jay Lethal in a gold match. Bull's horns got countered, so he countered lethal injection into a grounded sleeper hold for a quick submission win. Commentary sold this as Roosh, learning from what Mox did to him, but Mox made him pass out. Lethal tapped out from a sleeper, which doesn't really make any sense. If you want to do a rear naked choke and a tap out, that would make sense. Mediocre match, shit finish, the worst part of the Continental Classic this week. On Dynamite, we also got Mark Briscoe against Jay White in a gold match. Briscoe hit a powerbomb out of the corner, The White avoided Jay Driller. Mark countered Blade Runner into a nasty suplex on Jay's neck. After hitting a froggy bow earlier, Briscoe got countered by White on a second attempt, and he immediately hit Blade Runner for the win. The right winner, not nearly as good a match as Briscoe's had previously in the tournament. It felt like both this and the Roosh lethal match were booked as almost purposefully forgettable. Maybe that's just me, though. Uh, on collision, John Moxley told Swerve Strickland in a tape promo that he would be in for a long night when they finally fight. Swerve later put him over as a leader and the top dog in AEW because Tony Khan let him go on the field at a Jaguars game to meet Roger Goodell. I literally laughed 
that was seen as like an accomplishment in wrestling, that he's a big deal because he met Roger Goodell. But Swerve also said he doesn't feel pain. He can get just as violent as Mox. Expert promos as usual from both guys. They're like the only people in this entire tournament who are being given real opportunities to sell their matches. Everyone else just kind of goes out, wrestles, and that's about it. Swerve is taking the ball and running with it. So credit to him. That brings us to the final match of the Continental Classic this week. Mox against Swerve Gold. Uh, the guys delayed touching to get the crowd hype, and they delivered with multiple chants. Mox ran Swerve into the steel steps. He later came back with a flying elbow, and I think the gritty. Uh, Mox countered a rolling move with an RKO. Swerve came back with a jumping flatliner and basically a Claymore plus house call. Mox shoved him off the top rope outside and hit a stomp back inside. Were these guys previewing Seth Rollins' Drew McIntyre? Like, <laughs> it was weird. Uh, Swerve hit a running double stomp on Mox sitting in a chair outside plus a swerve stomp inside for a false finish. Mox then countered JML Driver into a pinning combination with one of Swerve's shoulders nowhere near on the canvas as Mox grabbed his belt for leverage and got the one, two, three. Now, Taz called it out immediately on commentary, which makes me think and hope that it was purposeful to give Swerve an excuse. If not, great job by Taz not treating the audience like idiots. Swerve was flummoxed at the result, Mox jumped to the top of the table with 12 points. He's going to sweep if he beats Jay White. If not, they're going to be tied on top with Swerve needing a win in his next match to tie them at 12 points. That would be a three-way tie. They could always do a triple threat tiebreaker that Swerve potentially could win. Anyway, this was easily the TV match of the week in both AEW and WWE. Four stars, A-, minus, but it's high, like a 93, like all the way up there. Excellent work from Bell to Bell. Great selling by both guys. Unique spots. Mox is now doing the RKO and the stomp a lot, but seeing Swerve do the Claymore as well, it was just kind of weird. Not that moves are exclusive to companies, but everyone knows who does what signatures. I'm not sure if Mox was the right winner. We're going to have to see the way the gold side of the bracket plays out in order to make that determination. I certainly was hoping for a Swerve going in and then late in the match coming out. That's not what we got, but let's see what the booking is before we praise or before we criticize. So that wraps up the Continental Classic this week. And overall, look, it's not over yet. There's still a long way to go, but what they are absolutely delivering is high quality matches. It has not really affected the ratings at all, but they're maintaining, which means that they are speaking to their audience. And that's a positive. They're speaking to me. It's pretty much my favorite part of AEW. It has been for the last couple of weeks. Let's go with everything else that happened across Dynamite, Collision, and Rampage. On Collision, Kenny Omega fought Ethan Page. Omega was dominating when Page took himself off the ropes with a power slam counter. Page escaped one-winged angel only to eat three V-triggers and then take one-winged angel with Omega prevailing. Kenny raised his arm after the bell and Page got a mini ovation. Fun match, good look for Page. He delivered in his first TV singles opportunity in six months. I guess we'll see him in May or June at this point. Big Bill then briefly attacked Omega on the ramp after the bell. This followed the prior attack on Chris Jericho. I think it was two weeks ago, if memory serves. On Dynamite, Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho hit the ring. They got a Golden Jets chant. I cannot help but think of Central Intelligence, the film with The Rock and Kevin Hart and Calvin Joyner, whose nickname in the movie was Golden Jet. Every single time I hear this name, but at least they actually have a tag team name. They immediately called out the champions. Ricky Starks thanked Omega for helping create AEW, but said Jericho sucks the life out of everything, pointing out how he screwed over his faction and could attack Kenny at any time. 
Omega admitted that he doesn't trust Jericho and then went on this weird rant about the firm, calling it an angle and referring back to soft, which got an ooh from the AEW fans because he made a WWE reference. Then Omega botched their name, calling them the Winnipeg Jets, you know, the NHL team. It wasn't on purpose. He just botched it. Starks was proud they don't have a tag team name, which is stupid. So Jericho called them the absolute assholes or the Rick and the Dick or Big Billy Starks. And that last one got no reaction. So Ricky pointed out, well, that one fell flat. So Chris tried to get and failed to get the crowd to chant for it. Then Starks took a shot at Jericho's clothes, calling them Hot Topic. So Jericho shot back that he was a better dressed, less charismatic version of Enzo Amore. Kenny said Enzo at least hyped up Bill and didn't take all the spotlight. Another big ooh from the fans for a WWE reference. Though I will say Jericho, I kind of deserved this one because that was a really good improv line about Enzo Amore. Starks went nuts, tried to get out of it and get them back on topic and challenged for World's End. There's no other way to put this. Omega was horrendous on the mic here. Like he's had some bad promos and segments before. It's not his strength, but this was an all-time low that I can remember. Jericho did his best to carry their team, but the whole deal was twice as long as it needed to be. And this marked the second time where a veteran took exception to a line, like a snide comment by Ricky, seemingly broke the script, and then took the segment completely off course where Ricky had to be the one to steer it back to its purpose. I thought this was terrible overall. Not sure how much was planned, how much they went over, but I cannot imagine Jericho went back through the curtain and was pleased coming out of this segment. On collision, Jake Hager was angry. Danhausen stuffed his hat in his jock. 2.0 then got fired up that they finally were able to fight in their home of Montreal. Ruby Soho showed up with Soraya upset and Anna Jay just like standing around them, even as Soraya called her friend losers. Uh, Soraya then berated Ruby, saying that she was going to leave her just like Tony Storm. So after two months of this shit, Soraya finally verbalized the entire point of this story. I mean, it took fucking forever for us to get to this point. 2.0, they were strong on the mic preceding this. Then we had Penta, El Zero Miedo, and Commander against 2.0. The heels got face cheers as locals and had a nice tandem code breaker. The Luchadors then hit a combined fear factor, tightrope 450 Meltzer driver for the win. It was a ridiculously unnecessary move. The promo was better than the match. It was actually a stupid booking. Why would you not have 2.0 just beat Commander? Like, why couldn't they win a match? It, it was the wrong decision, no question. On Dynamite, Rio fought Ruby Soho. Tony was on commentary and hysterically mocked Tony Schiavone's, it's staying call. It was actually my favorite thing she's done since adopting this gimmick. Rio hit a draping double stomp. Ruby hit a Saito suplex. Rio came back with a great crucifix bomb. Soho completely missed no future for a false finish. Rio countered her into a Northern Light suplex and hit a great dragon suplex, plus a Meteora for the win. This was the best AEW women's match in months and a great way to start reestablishing Rio, even though she's being rushed for a title match that she's gonna lose in just a couple of weeks. It was actually one of the best segments on Dynamite. I loved it. On Dynamite, the Von Eriks were backstage with Kevin saying he loves AEW and has a lot of friends there. The decision was made that the appropriate folks to work with the Von Eriks were Orange Cassidy, Tremperetta, and Danhausen. So they come in, Orange says he needs a partner for his tag team match on Rampage or partners. And the Von Eriks, the kids, accepted. 
They had Kevin Effin Von Erich available for a live wrestling television show in Dallas. And not only kept him backstage, but put him in a segment with Danhausen. What the hell are we doing here? Zero point zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. And I don't care that the kids got to wrestle on Rampage and presumably Kevin came out with them. Fine. That's not live wrestling TV in Dallas on your biggest show. It's your third show that no one watches late on a Friday night. It's Kevin Von Erich. You put him live on Dynamite. You let the Dallas crowd serenade him. I mean, it's it's not that hard. On Collision, in a 20-second video promo, House of Black said FTR lost their best friend, CM Punk, and now they're the only people who care about them, they being House of Black. That was seriously the extent of this. One line from Malachi Black. That was the entire segment. On Collision, Wardlow beat Willie Mack by referee stoppage in three minutes. He caught Mack flying, and I will say impressively powered him up into a powerbomb. Then he hit a deadlift powerbomb and a high-effort lariat, plus a last ride powerbomb. This was by far the best that Wardlow has been featured since his return, but commentary moved on from this immediately the second the bell rang. Didn't spend a second putting him over. It's like the hope from booking is for him to get the same reactions he did when he debuted and was doing the Powerbomb Symphony. But no one cares anymore. They just don't care about him. On Dynamite, Wardlow in a taped video package said he's been preparing for war since his return, and he planned to bring the devil to his knees. Nothing we haven't seen or heard from him before. Let's see if now that he beat Willie Mack, he does something more than squashes next week and going forward. On Collision, Wheeler Yuta interrupted a Hook interview calling him a paper champion. Hook said with no emotion that he kicked Katsuyori Shibata in the balls, he being Yuta. Yuta decided he wanted to take Hook out under FTW rules. So this is another instance of them doing one or the other. In this case, an FTW rules match without the title. Previously, They've done FTW title matches without the FTW rules. It's mind-boggling the way they're doing this. On Collision, Willow Nightingale fought Mercedes Martinez. Willow ate a Fisherman's Buster and then a flip-over slam out of a Razor's Edge start, only to no-sell the impact of a really cool move by flipping Mercedes over during the cover and getting the win. So, of course, she got attacked by Mercedes and Diamante after the bell until Chris Statlander made the save, didn't touch anyone, and they ran out of the ring. Absolute shit finish to the match. Immensely repetitive post-match. On Collision, Keith Lee was dressed like the king of an African nation during a sit-down interview with Shane Taylor, of which we got to see 30 seconds maybe. This actually looked like it might have been a really cool segment, except we didn't get to see any of it. So they wasted all of this time on AEW TV talking about this feud, which is going to be settled at an ROH show, and they don't even give us more than 20 seconds of what looked to be the most intriguing part of the entire storyline to this point. (laughs) What are we doing here? That is one big pile of shit. On Rampage International Championship, Orange Cassidy defending against Angelico. Orange sold the knee and Serpentico interfered a few times. So Danhausen did the same and then he cursed Angelico, who was unaffected with a grapevine ankle lock. Cassidy then beat him with Orange Punch. Seriously, what the fuck are we doing here? This is the number two title in the company being defended in half of a comedy match against a guy who had never in his entire Career won a singles match on AEW television. Not one singles win in five years. Zero wins of any kind on AEW television this year. You want to put him one-on-one with Orange Cassidy? Fine, make it a regular match. A fucking title match? What are we doing here? This is the 
epitome of not only bad booking, but lazy, dumb shit booking. I hate this. I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. On Rampage, Abaddon beat Trish Adora in under four minutes and got zero reaction until Julia Hart did the whole lights out appearance. Julia was wearing the most ridiculous lifted boots and I guess they did it just so she looked taller than Abaddon. She dropped the TBS title, so Abaddon grabbed it. Then the lights went out, came back on, and both Julia and the title were gone and Abaddon was all freaked out by this. Another situation where a women's challenger gets a bunch of bullshit wins against nobody just to try and legitimize a title opportunity when men get the same chances. We just gave you an example for no reason whatsoever. Total eye roll for me. Uh, it's just, it's... It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. And then on Collision, Hart cut a promo in a House of Black fashion saying she can't figure out Abaddon. It was okay, but it was short and kind of worthless. And lastly, on Rampage, Konosuke Takeshka and Powerhouse Hobbs beat Christopher Daniels and Matt Seidel in nine minutes. All of a sudden, CD and Seidel are having 10 matches a week. Hobbs completely no-sold to Hurricanrana, hit a lariat plus a spinebuster and world's strongest slam. Takeshka basically did nothing. Remember when this guy beat Kenny Omega twice? Like, what's happening now? Like, how have they not capitalized on this for Takeshka? They've changed Hobbs' gimmick. What are they going to do with Hobbs? He beat the shit out of Jericho and Omega. Now what? Like... Immensely frustrating, as you can tell, with both of those guys. So, folks, that wraps up AEW this week. And just like I promised at the beginning, I absolutely loved the Continental Classic and very much liked what we got with Samoa Joe and Hangman Page to start Dynamite. And to be fair, those were by far the most important parts of AEW this week. But, man, everything else, with the exception of, like, Rio and Ruby Soho, was immensely problematic, a waste of TV time. It really just goes to show, like, AEW, from a creative booking standpoint, they have enough to fill like three really high quality hours of TV. But going to five has just immensely stretched them. It's a huge problem. And with the roster size they have, not utilizing all the talent, there's rumors they want more TV time. I, I just, I don't get it. I don't see how this is gonna work long-term. Having, you know, five hours of TV per week. Again, if they're gonna keep booking it like this, that's really the biggest problem. It's when Collision was first introduced, it was different enough from Dynamite where you could watch both and feel like you were getting, even though it was the same brand, you know, a little bit different of a program with different talent. Now that it's just an extension of one another, the Friday and Saturday night stuff doesn't feel special. Dynamite, though, by far feels like the most important show. I guess that's good, but it's not resulting in higher ratings or more attention or anything. So really, what's the end goal of all of that? That's what's difficult to figure out, and it is going to factor into their TV negotiations with Warner Brothers coming up. We'll discuss some of that on Friday. As I mentioned, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over, but we'll also talk about it as we get closer here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. With that said, folks, let's go ahead, wrap up the show, and get you into your weekend. In terms of what's coming up here on Getting Over, as I said, Monday at Getting Overcast on Twitter, we will begin nominations for the 2023 Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties. So be sure to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You get to submit nominations, and then later this month, you will get to vote in those Getting Over Awards, aka the Meaties. Also, if you have thoughts or questions for the show, whatever they might be, you can DM them or tweet them to us at Getting Overcast, and we will certainly read them on the show, as you've heard uh, the last few episodes and the vast majority of episodes here at 
getting over. So that was a little bit of a reminder and a little bit of a schedule update. Uh, We will be back next Tuesday with our WWE episode and then same bat time, same bat channel next Thursday for an NXT and AEW episode. On the way out, allow me to hit you with two more reminders. First, the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about Defy. So be sure to leave us some five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. On Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. And I know we have not stressed the Spotify five-star ratings as much as Apple, but if you're listening to us on Spotify, first of all, many of you have found us through that platform. We greatly appreciate it. I hope you like being Getting Overheads and part of this podcast universe that we've created, but please just take like five seconds, hit that fifth star on uh, our page, basically. It means a lot to me. It would mean a lot to vintage Chris Vanini, and hopefully it helps us get platformed even better on Spotify. So again, five-star ratings, Spotify and Apple. Please also remember, I happen to love the number five. And I hope you do as well, because for $5 a month or 50 for the entire year, you can become an official getting overhead. Just visit buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. Sign up. You get exclusive bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling, instant reaction shows for the major TV programs, uh, basically during the week. You also get exclusive news posts every Friday. And anyone who's been a getting overhead, an official getting overhead, you know we have been all over these TV deals for quite some time, along with plenty of backstage stuff in the world of WWE. And we dip our toe in AEW as much as we can. But hey, we have room for improvement. And that's the area where we need to improve the most. I appreciate all of you listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Two big shows next week. Huge episodes still to come. End of December, early January 2024. We love having you with us. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now.